Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, March 16th, 2020, and today we are continuing our study on the book, Plain Theology for Plain People, and we will look at chapter three, The Way of Salvation. Well, good morning. We are continuing our study on the book, Plain Theology for Plain People, and we will be looking at chapter three, which is entitled The Way of Salvation. And so really, even on the very first pages, uh, we see in this great book, starting on uh, the second page, uh, as you see it there in your book, uh, we see it says, in the Garden of Eden, both the justice and mercy of God are manifested. Justice demands that the sinners should be driven from the garden. But before the Lord compels them to go, he graciously sets a star of hope in their dark skies. And so we see that the way of salvation, the very gospel that we have and have been saved by, is this tension between justice and mercy. God's wrath and God's love all tangled together at the cross and as a part of our salvation. So let's look at Genesis chapter three. We know that Adam and Eve have sinned. And so uh, we, they, they have, they've fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, they have eaten of the tree by which God had said not to eat. Uh, they have been caught in the garden by God. They are hiding Right, man and woman who had enjoyed walking in the presence of God with God are now hiding from the presence of God. They they have sewed fig leaves together because they don't want to be seen by God naked. They know they're naked, and God comes onto the scene and He begins to tell them there is a wage, there is a penalty. Romans six twenty three. There is a penalty, a wage for your sin, and that is death. Right now. What the Satan even said is, well, if you eat of this fruit, you will not surely die. They didn't die a immediate physical death, but they would end up dying physical death. But more importantly, they now just ushered in a, a eternal death as they were separated from the presence of God. And so we see these, these punishments, we see these penalties of breaking the law of God and sinning before God, but yet we see a promise. So amidst the justice of God, because you have sinned, because you've eaten of the fruit by which I told you not to, here is the penalty, here is the payment that will happen. Oh, but here is the truth. He he gives the, the curse to the serpent. And admits this, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But then listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise here foreshadows the cross where Satan would bruise Jesus. He would bruise him on the heel. But on the third day, Jesus would crush the head of Satan, defeating him once and for all. 
It reminds us of what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 15, 50 through 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Right? Well, this doesn't even make sense, but it makes sense in light of Genesis 3.15. Yes, the serpent would bruise the heel of Jesus, but ultimately, oh, ultimately, beloved, Jesus would crush the heel of the snake, the head of the snake. Justice and mercy are the way of our salvation. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and we deserve the wrath and the justice of God. Beloved, today we cry out for justice to God. But many times we fail to understand that we are the lawbreakers for whom his justice must avenge. We're looking for justice, but we're the lawbreakers. We're the lawbreakers and it's his justice that's coming to avenge the way that we've broken the law. And the Jews missed this too. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from neighboring lands and from physical enemies. And they completely missed that the Messiah was coming to save man from himself. Messiah was coming to save man from himself. Love what Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 6, starting in verse 11. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord Yahweh. I am weary of holding it. Pour it out unto the children in the street and upon the gatherings of the young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Oh, that's why when we see in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and, and, and he, he doesn't want the other rulers of the law. He doesn't want everyone else to know that he's going to Jesus. But he comes to Jesus at night, right? When, when everyone else would have been asleep, when everyone else would have been at their house. And he really wanted to know this. Are you the Messiah? And the truth of the matter is, we know that, that, that Nicodemus, being a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the law, He wanted to come and he says, you're not a normal Messiah. You weren't the king we were looking for. There's something greater about you, Jesus. And he said, who can do these signs unless God is with him? He understood that Jesus coming was bigger than a physical reality. It was bigger than Jesus coming to avenge justice from neighboring lands or from enemies. He was coming for something bigger. 
And Jesus says something that's absolutely radical to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, 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 and I said, Nicodemus is like, what? Are, are you saying that one would go back into his mother's womb? How in the world? Oh, but then Jesus says something that's so beautiful. Look at John chapter three, starting in verse 13. It says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life for the son of man. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because the works, their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that his so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, in this passage, Jesus mentions up, you know, hey, the son of man, who is he except he who descended from heaven, the son of man? And then he gives this you know, nondescript reference in, in John chapter three, verse 14 to Moses lifting up the serpent in the serpent in the wilderness. So, and he says, but in the same way, the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this serpent on a pole that Jesus mentions? Flip over to Numbers chapter 21. And I want us to see this this example that Jesus gives in scripture from, from Numbers chapter 21. And I want us to see, as we're reading this, four quick observations from this scene where the people commanded to look in order to live. So let's, let's read in verses four through nine. Numbers chapter 21, verses four through nine. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke a bit against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe, we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Oh, verse six, the people are impatient. They are mad. They are angry. And they come to the place and they say, we loathe this worthless food. Well, you know what the food was? The food was the bread of heaven. You know who Jesus later will say he is? I am the bread of life. God sent Jesus into the world to be the bread of life. God sent manna into the wilderness to feed his people. 
In the Old Testament, the Egyptians, as they were going through the wilderness and this manna was coming down, they said, we loathe this worthless food. When Jesus would come to be the savior of the world, men would look at him, would scorn him, would reject him, would mock him, would spit upon him, would hang him on a cross and say, we loathe this Messiah. We loathe this savior. Four quick observations that we see from the scene in Numbers the people are commanded to look at this fiery bronze serpent, to look and to live. First, the serpent on the pole is not preventative, right? This is, this is not a, a, a vaccine, right? Even right now, as the world is currently panicking over the coronavirus and looking, right, for a vaccine, they're looking for something to prevent it from, from spreading, Right. We are we are looking at governments. We are looking at our president in the United States. We are looking at others. We're looking at the CDC. We're looking at the World Health Organization. And we're going, can't someone just come up with a vaccine? Right. I want to take a vaccine so that I can inoculate myself. Right. From from the coronavirus. Huh. Well, here's the thing. This poll was not a vaccine. The people were already bitten. Right. Verse eight says, and the Lord said to Moses, make this fiery serpent on a pole and everyone who is what bitten and sees it will live. You see what they needed was they didn't need a vaccine. They needed inoculation and they needed an antidote. They were dying. They had the disease. They had been guilty. God had sent his wrath in the snake and the serpent on the pole was not preventative. No. The poison was in them and it was divine intervention by God. God said, you look, you have faith, you look at this pole. And by faith, if you look at this pole, you who are already bitten, you who the poison is already within you, this will give you the antidote. Oh, faith in God, faith in the power of God is the antidote to our sin. And you see, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the, the venom of those serpents. But second thing we see, the snakes in the camp are from the Lord. He sent them. Verse six, after they saved, we, we loathe this worthless food. It said the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of them died. You see, the wrath of God is on this people. And even as we see in Numbers chapter 21, a picture of our own salvation, let us know that this is God's wrath. He cannot stand sin. He looks upon sin. He looks upon their ingratitude. He looks upon their murmuring. He looks upon their, their rebellion against the very nature of God. And he has to, the justice of God comes in. And notice it is being acted upon those who have sinned with rebellion and who are not thankful for the Lord's provision. These are people who have sinned, who have rebelled, who have, who have castigated the Lord. They've rebelled against his provision. They fought against his protection and they have warred against his control. And they are the ones for whom the wrath of God comes. And so are we. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Do not miss it. The snakes in the camp here in Numbers 21, they are from the Lord. Huh, we don't like this picture of God. As a matter of fact, I believe today that our churches are trying to soft pedal this picture of God. Let's paint a picture of a God that's loving, a God that has a sheep and a cane and a staff, and a God that says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yes, Jesus says that. But why does he say that? It's because he will give us rest from the wrath that is due us, from the penalty of our sin. 
You see, in the Garden of Eden, life was easy. They were taking strolls with God. They had everything they needed. There was peace. But when sin entered in the world, we became weary. We became frustrated. We became, uh, there was a burden upon us. Our work was harder. Childbirth was made more difficult. Men would tool the ground just to have the weeds and the thicket. Life was tough. That was the justice of God due the penalty of our sin. And that's why Jesus has to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Rest from what? Rest from his wrath due to us as the penalty of our sin. Don't miss it. We deserve it. We are the ones that have sinned. We are the ones that transgress. We deserve the wrath, but the wrath is from God. But then third, the way that God fashions the rescue of his people from his own curse that he placed on them, the way that God fashions to rescue his people from the own curse that he put on them, that's God's mercy. Do you see God's mercy? They pray to God and they say, oh, please take the serpents away from us. So Moses prays for the people and the mercy of God is there. He tells Moses what to do. Put this fiery bronze serpent on a pole and tell the people to look at the pole and they will live. He placed it upon them. And the very thing that would be their salvation was a picture of the curse. They were looking upon the very thing that was biting them and had bitten them. Right, The thing that was set to judge them, the thing that was, was set to show them how, how foolish they had been, was the very thing that they would look upon. They were looking upon the instrument of God's wrath. They had to look upon a fiery bronze serpent, the instrument of God's wrath. Oh, the way that God fashions to rescue his people is from the own curse that he placed upon them. But the fourth takeaway that we see from Numbers chapter 21 is all that is required for them to be saved and to receive the grace of God in order to be saved from God's wrath is to look at God's provision hanging on a pole. Man, only by faith, had to look at the image to be saved, for the, for the venom to, to be displaced, for the poison to go away. It wasn't that the man had to do anything. Man wasn't saving himself. Man wasn't doing anything in his own. He didn't say, hey, man, go and find these herbs and put them together in a pot and bake them in this pot. And if you eat these herbs, then you will be saved. No, he said, only look, look and be saved. Faith comes by hearing and faith comes in believing. We are not saved by our works so that any man would be able to boast, but we are saved by faith and the grace of God. Oh, in Numbers chapter 21, found quoted by Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we find these mysteries of justice and mercy. And just in, like in chapter 3, in pain, plain theology for plain people, outlines for us the plan of salvation, Numbers 21 mirrors the grace and the mercy of Christ for us. Just like this chapter that we've read in Plain Theology for Plain People, Numbers chapter 21 shows us a picture. It mirrors the grace and the mercy of God amidst the wrath of God do us for our sin. And so looking back at John chapter 3, five observations on how this physical example from Numbers chapter 21 points to a greater salvation reality for me and for you. So ultimately, Numbers chapter 21 points to a greater reality for our salvation. And the first thing we want to see is that Jesus is the Son of Man who was lifted up. 
Jesus was the son of man that was lifted up. He was lifted up on a cross the way the snake was lifted up. He identifies himself as the son of man. John chapter nine, verse 35 to 37 says this. Do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. So when Jesus speaks of the son of man being lifted up, he's talking about himself in his own crucifixion. In the same way that the snake was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on a pole at Calvary. He was lifted up on a cross. The son of man, Jesus must be lifted up. Jesus is the son of man that's lifted up. But second, we see that Jesus is the source of rescue. Jesus in the place of the snake on the pole is the source of healing and the source of rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Moses, he lifted up the snake, but Moses is not the rescuer. He is not the one who did the work. And, and Jesus sets up this comparison for them, right? Because if you remember the Jews, they, they thought Moses, right, was the great. Remember the transfiguration, right? Peter looks up and there's Ezekiel, right? And there's Moses and he goes, oh, Jesus, this is good that we are here. Let's set up three tents, one for Ezekiel, one for Moses, and one for you. You're equal to them. Right? That's what the Jews thought. Oh, Moses was, was this hero, Father Abraham, Moses, Ezekiel. These were the heroes of their faith. It wasn't Moses who did anything. He was just the instrument to put up God's salvation up. But who was the instrument to, put, to raise the Son of God, the Son of Man up? John 8, 28. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, when you, Pharisees, have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. You see, the Pharisees were the ones that stood in the place of Moses. They were not the rescuer of our salvation. They were the instrument that raised Jesus up on the cross in the same way that Moses was not the rescuer in Numbers 21. He is only the instrument used by God to put the curse on the pole so that the people could look and they could live. In Numbers, the one who saves is God by the means of the snake. And in John Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the one who saves is me. I will be the one that saves when I am high and lifted up. And here's the deal. Nicodemus would have understood this imagery. He would, he would have known what it meant for, in, for Numbers 21 to be quoted. When Jesus said, you remember when Moses lifted up the servant? Remember, they would quote these stories. Like think of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six. When you're in your homes, repeat the word. When you're in the market, repeat the word. When you lay down, repeat the word. Put it as a frontlet on your forehead. Put it over the door frames of your house. Nicodemus being a ruler of the Jews, being a Pharisee, being a man of the law, he would have known exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? In the same way, the son of man must be lifted up. Instantly, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, I will be lifted up and I will be the one that saves. But third, and here's the maybe confusing thing for us. So follow this. Jesus is portrayed as a curse. What? Well, wait, doesn't, doesn't John chapter three, verse 27 say that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him? But you see, the snakes in, in Numbers 21 were killing people. The snake on the pole was a picture of God's curse on the people. And so it was with Jesus. 
Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Huh. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be a curse, to enter into our curse in order that we might have the righteousness of God. And then Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And becoming like the snake, Jesus was the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took ours away. He became the curse to take our curse away. We must remember that the sorrow that Jesus felt on the way to the cross was not a fear of physical death. It wasn't the fear of the flogging. It wasn't the fear of the spitting. It wasn't the fear of the reveling. It wasn't the fear of the, the whips. It wasn't the fear of the suffocation on the cross. It wasn't the scrutiny of physical torment. Huh. No, the dread was that the curse of all mankind would be placed upon his shoulders as he bore the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And the Father would turn his back on him. Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners. But as John 3.18 tells us, whoever does not look and whoever does not believe is condemned. So Jesus coming into the world to save us, while salvation for those that believe is death for those that reject him. Verse 18, forever believes in him is not condemned. He's salvation. There's the mercy of God. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because the light reveals his works. His works become exposed. But whoever, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Oh, beloved, this reminds us cannot earn our salvation by our own works, by our own deeds. And just like Octavius Booth says in chapter three of, of plain theology for plain people, there's some who believe that they, they, they are, they're just too worthless. My sins are too great. Nothing can save me. That's a works-based salvation. Well, I've, I've done so bad that there's nothing I can ever do to earn God's favor. You're right. There's nothing you can ever do to earn God's favor. And in converse, there are those that believe, well, I, I don't need a savior. I mean, I'm pretty good. I've never done anything really all that bad. I, I mean, I, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't do, go with girls that do. I, I don't do all these, these things. I don't steal, I don't rob, I don't kill, I don't destroy. I go to church, I read my Bible. Ah, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need God's grace. And what God is saying is, oh, the light the light, which is the son of man, the light, which is Jesus that comes into the world is your curse because it will expose your deeds and your deeds will be sinful. Oh, 
But for those of us in Christ who look at the curse and live, oh, what the beauty of verse 21. But whoever does what is true, we come to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his work, the work of Christ, has been done and carried out by God in our life. We come to the light not to show all the good things we've done. We come to the light to show all the good things that God has done for us. Oh, God's justice, the penalty of our sin with God's mercy, where he takes the sin for us. He becomes the curse for us. But then fourth, Jesus gives eternal life. Just like in Numbers chapter 21, when the people looked upon the pole, they were healed and they were saved. We are saved because we look to Christ and we follow Christ. But we know the people in, in Numbers chapter 21, they eventually would die. As a matter of fact, we know they've died. Because if somebody from Numbers chapter 21, one of those who had been bit, bitten by the snake and looked at the pole were still living, we would talk about that person. Because they would be over 2,000 years old. And that would be a Guinness Book of World Record. But we know they died. They ended up dying a physical death. They eventually died an earthly death. But what Jesus comes to give from the cross is eternal life. That's why when he reminds Nicodemus, you remember when Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness? Well, the Son of Man's going to be lifted up. Why? Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away, God is for us totally. And if God is for us, we will never die, but we will live with him forever in joy. That brings us to the fifth takeaway that we see from Numbers chapter 21 and John chapter 3 about our salvation, the way of salvation that we see where justice and mercy mix. And that is that Jesus crucified is the one that we see. He's the one we look to. All of this, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, who was very confused. Remember about this new birth? Like, how are you born again, Jesus? How do you get back into your mother's womb? Jesus was telling old Nick, he said, look, I am the instrument of the new life and new birth. Whoever looks to me, whoever believes in me, whoever looks to my cross, believes in my cross and believe that I have conquered sin and death by raising on the third day. If you believe in me and you follow me, you will have a new birth and you will have eternal life. And the grace of the new birth is us seeing Christ lifted up. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. This is love. Not that we loved God. No, we loathed God. We loathed his provision. We loathed this worthless food that he was giving us each and every day. Oh, so we deserve a curse. Oh, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, as the, as the atoning sacrifice, as the one that would satisfy as the antidote to the curse. Oh, we deserve the curse. But Jesus became the antidote. The very curse became the antidote so that we could live eternally with God. Beloved, this is the majesty, this is the beauty, and this is the grace of our salvation. Where God's mercy, where God's judgment, where God's wrath, Meet his grace, his mercy, his love, 
and his goodness. Jesus sent to be a curse because of our sin, because of our dirtiness, because of our wickedness, because of our rebellion, because of our ungrateful spirit, Jesus was sent to be a curse. The light came into the world to expose the deeds of mankind, to show that we were sinners and we deserve death. Oh, but Jesus, but God brought his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that those that would look upon him, risen up, lifted up, high on a pole, high on a cross. If we look to him, if we trust in him, if we believe in him, if we follow him, then we too might become the righteousness of God. Let's, as a benediction, look at the words that Paul told the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Beloved, the way of salvation is to look to Jesus and live. Because of our sin, because of our trespass, because of our rebellion, because of our ungratefulness. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve those snakes. We deserve the piercing light of judgment to come and expose our deeds. Darkness flees from the light because the darkness does not want to be exposed. That's the curse, the light exposing our wickedness the things we think we do in secret, the things we do that we think no one is looking, the things we say in our mind, the way we cut people up with a knife behind their back, the way we have jealousy and bitterness and resentment in our hearts. The light of the gospel comes to show that. And the wrath of God exposes us that we are dead in our trespasses and we are dead in our sins. But praise be to God for that triumphal procession that he brings to bear the very curse, the light. He raises him up to be our curse, to take on our sin. The justice of God satisfied in the cross of Christ and the mercy of God realized in the cross of Christ. At the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. At the cross, God's mercy is realized. And that, beloved, is the way of salvation. What prayer request do we have this morning? 
Well, thanks for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. This week, we are praying for our domestic foster care program. We are praying for our partnerships, Altadena Valley Presbyterian, Homewood Church of Christ, Gardendale First Baptist Church, and many, many other churches that are hosting classes this semester. Our partnership with DHR and DSS, both in Alabama and South Carolina, and specifically as new partnerships are emerging in the counties of Morgan, Talladega, and Tuscaloosa. For our new partnership with King's Home to grow And we're also praying for children in care, and specifically as we think about right now the coronavirus that is sweeping across the world and sweeping across our nation. We pray for the children in care and for their birth families. We pray for salvation, for healing, and for the trauma they have endured, for quick reunification when families are safe and supported, for adopted families where parental rights have been terminated. We pray for the salvation of birth families, their motivation to accomplish their goals. We pray for all of our currently licensed foster homes to Stay licensed even when they feel like quitting for foster families in process who are even going in the process of getting uh, licensed right now through these tough and turbulent times. We also pray for churches to care for the government and all those involved uh, and help share the burden with them for churches involved in foster care to expand holistic support to foster families and birth families and to use quality resources like fostering hope as they lead their families. We just pray for our team here in the United States that leads so fearlessly in Alabama and South Carolina to equip these families. We pray for over 16 new foster families that have already been equipped and empowered and licensed this year. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray for the foster families as they work tirelessly and diligently to care for uh, children in foster care. Lord, we pray for birth families, that they would go through their steps of reunification process. Lord, that they would seek after you, that the church would surround them. Father, we pray for the Department of Human Services, both on the federal level and the local level, as they care so much right now for our health of our country and our nation. Lord, but also have to worry and care for uh, these kids in foster care, the almost half a million kids in foster care. Lord, we just ask that you would be with our overtaxed system, um, and Lord, that you would give them the ability, that you would give them resources, that you give them wisdom, that you give them energy, and Lord, you'd protect them and keep them, uh, Father, and that the church would rise up strong to surround the Department of Human Resources, Department of Human Services, uh, the the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. Lord, we uh, just give this week to you. Father, we trust these children to you, and we entrust our nation to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.